over the past three years or so as I've had the opportunity to preach, 2 Corinthians has been my text. So this particular passage that Josh just read is not random. It's simply the next text in my long, drawn-out series. And it's been exciting for me to consider how well this particular text fits with our current series through Leviticus. I hope, as Josh was reading, you saw some similarities there. There's no way I could have planned to arrive at this particular text in, text in 2 Corinthians at this time, but God did. And I am thankful for His kind providence in bringing this about. Our time in Leviticus has been hugely helpful and encouraging to both me and my wife, Jolene. And I've heard from several of you who have testified of the same thing. Thank you, Dan, for the courage to take us through such a daunting book and for your diligent and careful preparation and study as you deliver excellent sermons each and every week. The message of Leviticus is one that we need to hear And we're truly blessed through your faithful preaching of that book to us. Since we haven't been here in 2 Corinthians since July, a brief review of the context I think might be helpful. Paul knew that most of those in the Corinthian church had been reconciled to God, but there were some who were still rejecting Paul's leadership. And that troubled him. It troubled him not because he wanted to be liked by everybody, but because in rejecting him as the messenger of reconciliation with God, they were actually rejecting the message of reconciliation. And Paul knew that the reason that some of them were rejecting him was that they didn't believe he was a true apostle, especially compared to the attractive and glamorous super apostles that they had come to accept. And these men were really just false teachers. They were men who used the name of Christ to promote themselves. So throughout this entire letter, Paul seeking to defend his ministry and make the case why it's authentic and why his message should be embraced and the message of the false teachers should be rejected. So in our chapter here, chapter 6, in verses 4 through 10, Paul argues that his endurance, his endurance through an incredible list of very difficult things proved that he was the real deal. And in verses 11 through 13, we see that although many of the Corinthians had grown cold in their love towards Paul, treating him with suspicion and with distrust, Paul's heart was wide open and it remained full of love for them. On the surface, as we look at our text this morning, on the surface, it might not really seem to follow the flow of the context which has actually caused some people to conclude that our passage this morning was inserted by someone other than Paul. I don't think that's the case. And actually, what Paul says here makes really good sense in light of what he's addressing throughout the whole book. As we come to our text this morning, we see in verse 14, we see a command. The command to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We see that command repeated with some different words in, at the end of this passage in chapter 7, verse 1. And in the explanation between the bookends, we see the command stated again in verse 17. Between the command at the beginning and the command at the end, Paul offers two supports. He says, be separated because of your identity, of who you are, 
14 through 16. And because of God's promises, what he has done and what God is doing. So this is how our passage lays out for us this morning. And after we consider this, we're going to end just thinking through some application. What does this passage say to us, both corporately as well as individually? Paul's readers would have been very familiar with this image of a yoke. But since we use tractors today, it's probably going to be helpful for us to just get this image in our mind a little bit. So, there it is. This is a picture of a double yoke. A double yoke that would have been used at this time. And typically this would have been used to put animals in for work in their fields for their uh, agrarian society. So if the two animals in the yoke aren't a match, it's simply not going to work. An unequal yoke has the idea of being mismatched. See, the yoke is not even going to fit if the animals aren't the same species and the same size. So Paul is telling the Corinthians that they must not get into a double harness with unbelievers because it's not a match. Even if the yoke somehow fits, the team would be uneven. A good modern day illustration of this, I think for us, is a three-legged race. We see this each and every picnic in the end of the summer. The three-legged race, I think, illustrates this well. Ankles of two different people are tied together. And most likely, the winner of the race will be two people who are a good match. They're about the same size, with a similar leg height, which allows for a very equal stride. Animals that are yoked together lose the freedom of independent movement. Their actions must be the same as the animal that they're yoked to. And those in a three-legged race are no longer free to move their legs however and whenever they want. There's a loss of independence as each must share in the action of the other. This metaphor of being yoked together refers to any kind of joint participation, formal or informal, that significantly forms one's identity. So to be yoked together, in the words of Haithman, is to take on the identity of those who are joined together for a common goal or task. It is to be someone's ally. Well, does Paul have a specific situation in mind here as he brings this up? I think he does. If the context is maintained, this is likely an application of his general command in verse 13 to, for the Corinthians to open wide their hearts to Paul. Because in order to do that, they could not be yoked together with unbelievers. And given the situation that Paul finds himself in, opening up to Paul would necessary, necessarily require the Corinthians to close themselves off to those who oppose him. Those who oppose Paul, he is now identifying as unbelievers. So Paul is bringing out here in stark terms the absolute incompatibility between those who believe and hence support Paul's ministry and those who are calling his apostleship into question. His primary focus here is on separation from unbelievers 
who are seeking to divide the church from within. His concern is that the faithful in Corinth separate from those who are not truly identified with Christ, despite their outward profession. Regardless of what these guys may say, they remain idolaters. Because as Paul mentions previously in the letter, they deny the Son with their worship of health and wealth. And they remain unbelievers because they deny the life-transforming power of the Spirit, substituting instead a desire for spiritual ecstasy and miracles. So Corinthians, Paul says, you must not be unequally yoked to these guys and their followers. And he gives them a reason. The first is, don't be yoked to these guys because of your identity, because of who you are. In support of this command, Paul reminds the Corinthians of their true identity by asking five rhetorical questions, all of which, all of which reveal how utterly incompatible, how incongruous, how contradictory, how impossible it is for, those, for who they really are in any way, shape, or form to fit together with who these unbelievers really are. So the first question we see here, there beginning in verse number, um, at the end there of verse 14, the first question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? As Paul stated in chapter 5 and verse 21 of this letter, the Corinthians are righteous in that they have become the righteousness of God. Their sin has been credited to Christ, and in turn Christ's righteousness was credited to them, which showed itself in righteous living. They once were lawless sinners, but the Corinthians are now righteous. Second, Paul asks, what fellowship is light with darkness? In chapter 4, verse 6 of this letter, Paul said, God who said, let, sh- let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, light is not a mystical concept. It's a moral designation that refers to the new life of obedience to God. The Corinthians once lived in darkness, but they had become light. The third question, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial here is a reference to the devil. The name is an extension of the equivalent Hebrew word, which means worthlessness or treacherous. Paul certainly viewed Satan's word through his opponents to be worthless and treacherous. But Christ isn't worthless. He is the pearl of great price. And he's truth, not treachery. The Corinthians are united to Christ, so he is their identity. Fourth question, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The Corinthian Christians had many things in common with unbelievers, but their lot or their share was very different. As Paul writes in Colossians 1.12, they were qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. They followed in the long train of those like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Moses, David and Samuel and all the prophets who rested their trust in God. 
Unbelievers have no share in the community or promises. The Corinthians' identity is heirs of all the eternal blessings in Christ. The fifth and climactic question, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? As Dan explained so well last week, God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle and then in the temple, but Jesus came. Emmanuel, God with us. God's presence dwelt in Christ. He displaced the temple. And now under the new covenant, those in Christ become temples in which God dwells on earth through his spirit. So Paul is saying here, you Corinthian church, both individually and corporately, are the place of God's presence in the world. And God doesn't tolerate any rivals. Idols are simply unwelcome in his temple. So Paul says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers because of who you are. You have a totally different identity than unbelievers. Your sphere of life is mutually exclusive. You cannot share in a common task or goal with unbelievers. You can't work together and be their ally. So don't get into a yoke with them. It's going to go about as well is a big, strong ox sharing a yoke with a chihuahua. Or perhaps it'll go about as well as Thane Lassan, who we affectionately call Thor, <laughs> running a three-legged race with our 18-month-old son, Josiah. It's not going to work. Completely different identities. So Corinthians, because of who you are, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul says. And second, he supports this command by saying don't be unequally yoked because of what God has promised. Because of what God has promised. Look with me the last part of verse 16 and follow along through verse 18. Paul says, for, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this looks to us like one long Old Testament quote, but it's actually six single, mutually interpreting Old Testament quotes. They're incredibly rich. There's so much here, but they're really complex as well, and we simply don't have time this morning to look at them in much depth. But what's important to understand is that all of these Old Testament references refer in their respective context to God's promise to restore exiled Israel to their land. They speak about the special relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament and also about the ethical consequences of that relationship. So first we see here a promise in the end of verse 16 of being restored to intimacy. And here Paul is quoting from Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, Ezekiel 37, 27, the context of which deals with setting the people of God apart and the absolute necessity for them to separate themselves from worshiping idols so that they may properly revere God's holy place. 
So in this, Paul argues that the original covenant promise of intimacy with God is now being fulfilled in the Corinthian church, which confirms that they are indeed the temple of God in which he dwells. The realization of their incredible blessings as heirs of this personal intimacy with God, Paul intended for that to motivate them towards holiness and to drive them to separate from sin. Verse 17 refers to Isaiah 52.11 and the context there refers to, to carrying the Lord's vessels out of Babylon. And that was a sacred task which necessarily precluded any contamination with idols. So, so Paul's quotation here reinforces the need to be separated from the worship of idols if the hearers are to be God's people. If that's the case. If that separation is there, then God offers the promise of being restored by adoption. And Paul identifies this promise through three snippets from 2 Samuel 7, Ezekiel 20, and Isaiah 43, 6. And all of these come from context filled with the promise of restoration. So Paul is reflecting here the Jewish expectation that God's people would one day be adopted as his children by virtue of their allegiance to and incorporation in God's Son, the Messiah. So he says in chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do we get the point? Oh, it's really clear. Since the Corinthians are already part of God's new covenant people in fulfillment of the prophet's hopes, since the Corinthians have received the promise of being restored to intimacy with God and the promise of being restored by adoption, because of that, they must separate themselves from unbelievers the unbelievers among them who are, follow, who, who are following false apostles and believing a different gospel. So, what does this have to do with us? Well, like the Corinthians, we too must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers because our identity as God's people today is that of righteousness. In light, we too are united to Christ and we too are the temple of the living God. And just like the Corinthians, we are recipients of God's promise to be restored to intimacy with Him through adoption as His very own sons and daughters. And so let's consider some application of this text, both as a church as well as individually, on a personal level. Paul's primary concern here is for the purity of the corporate church as the temple and family of God. We've got to remember this. We know this, but let's just remind ourselves. As a local church, we are not just one of many institutions that play an essential role in the fabric of society. We're not a social service that meets the felt needs of our neighbors 
and members. As the new covenant people of God, we, Eden Baptist Church, are the temple of the living God. He dwells here. And we're the family of God, united not by common ethnicities, social class, stage of life, or interest. No, no. Our shared identity is Christ. He unites us. We're the people of God created by His presence, living in relationship to Him, and existing for the purpose of glorifying Him. So, this is why we're committed to pursuing a regenerate church membership. Striving as best we can to determine whether or not someone is truly an individual temple of God before they join with our corporate temple of God. It's so vital that we guard the front door lest we become unequally yoked with unbelievers. And this too is why we practice corrective church discipline. When a member of our church is living in unrepentant sin, when they're demonstrating that they no longer share in the same goals and identity that are defined in our covenant, in our finite judgment, at that time, as best as we can tell, we're unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And because we're the temple of the living God, we must patiently, lovingly, and humbly remove, from, remove them from our yoke. As Paul commanded the Corinthians to do in his first letter to them in chapter 5. This call for our church to be distinct from the world also deeply affects what we do and what we don't do in our Sunday Sunday gatherings, like this morning. Since we are in the presence of God, His revealed Word must guide every aspect of our worship. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10? Remember those guys, Aaron's sons? They entered God's presence in violation of his instructions to them, then God struck them dead on the spot. God doesn't work like that today, for which we can be thankful. But the lesson is clear, is it not? God's not okay with people coming into his presence any old way they like. We must worship God on his terms. And since we are in His presence and He is holy, our worship must not be influenced by the world or expressed in worldly ways that are attractive to unbelievers. I think in a sense it's possible to be unequally yoked with unbelievers by incorporating into our worship ideas and expressions that flow from our secular, unbelieving culture. We've got to resist this. We must resist this on all fronts, and worship in a way that is distinct and separate from the influences of our man-centered and entertainment-driven world. And in all of this, we must remember that since God dwells with us, we display His glory to an unbelieving world around us, who, by the way, is watching. They are watching. It's vital that we rightly represent to them who God is and that we accurately display the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
See, if we are in some way unequally yoked with unbelievers, we're lying to them about who God is. And we're distorting the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So the power in our witness to the world is our freedom from idolatry. Let's never forget that our holiness is absolutely essential to our witness. Thinking now on a personal level. Since individual temples possessed by God's Spirit make up the corporate temple where God dwells, there's absolutely an application for us all personally. See, our church will not be holy if we as members aren't holy because how we live affects others. Which is why in our church covenant, there's a statement statement that says we pledge to faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives. This command to not be unequally yoked does not mean that Christians should only do business with Christians, live only in Christian neighborhoods, eat only with Christians in Christian restaurants, play only on Christian sports teams, only go to Christian schools, so on and so on and so on. It's not what this is saying. These are all secondary associations that do not necessarily define our primary identity as members of God's people. And in fact, such involvements will be necessary, unavoidable, and even essential if we are to obey our call to spread the gospel as salt and light. We need only look at the life of Jesus, who regularly spent time with unbelievers and we could also look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, where in, ex- in, ex- in explaining to the Corinthian church why they needed to separate themselves from the immoral within the church, he made it very clear, I'm not saying you need to separate from the immoral outside the church, because that would actually be impossible. So Paul doesn't envision separation here between believers and unbelievers in social and civil contexts. For as one has said well, he does not primarily have in view the life of the church in the world, but the life of the world in the church. That's what Paul has primarily in mind here. I was really helped by how Huerwis and Willeman observe that Paul isn't calling for a Christian ghetto. Instead, he's calling for a Christian colony that is an island of one culture in the midst of another, a colony of resident aliens within a hostile environment, which in the most subtle but deadly ways corrupts and co-ops us as Christians. So in our everyday lives, there must be contact with unbelievers, but there must not be contamination. What then does it mean to be personally yoked to unbelievers? We we need to think about that. That's not what it means. What, What does it mean? Remember that the metaphor of being yoked together refers to any kind of joint participation that significantly forms one's identity. It is to take on the identity of another for a common goal or task. However, Casual, non-defining participation does not constitute such a yoke. 
For example, athletes are yoked together when they share their identity as members of the same team. But playing catch with someone on a team doesn't make you a member of that team. I think Haifman has it right when he states that determining whether or not you are yoked together is somewhat of a judgment call that depends on the degree, significance, purpose, and level of self-identification involved in one's participation. So deciding what yokes we wear is a matter of discernment. The key question becomes, what associations determine who I am? This is going to be tricky, right? Perhaps you've got examples and scenarios in your mind and you're, boy, it's, it's really kind of hard to tell if this is a yoke or not. It can be hard. It can be tricky. So, so as the body of Christ, we ought to help each other. We should be talking about this kind of thing and gaining the perspective of others as we seek to work through the specifics and particular challenges that we face in various situations in this regard. I don't think here Paul specifically has marriage in mind. But there is no question that when a man and woman enter the covenant of marriage, they are being yoked together in the deepest of all human relationships. So to all of you here this morning who are unmarried, you must not marry an unbeliever. Period. And because of that, you shouldn't even think about dating one. It's an insane and extremely dangerous idea. So don't even begin to go there in even the slightest way. He or she may be really nice. Perhaps even nicer than the Christian options in your life right now. But first and foremost, don't forget that you are already married to Christ. And your love for him must keep you from romantic love towards someone who does not share your identity as a follower of Jesus. Now we know that there are those who become Christians after they're already married. And so they find themselves married to an unbeliever. And and there are others who by all appearances marry a believer, but later it becomes evident that they really aren't. Well, according to God's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Peter 3, they should remain with their unbelieving spouses and trust God's good and sovereign and wise purposes to use their example of holiness in the life of their mate. Thinking about this this week, I can only imagine how hard that would be. And to those of you in our church family who personally know the difficult trial of being married to an unbeliever, Please know that we love you. We share your burden for the soul of your mate. And we desire to help and encourage you to be faithful in your calling in whatever way that we can. Thinking a bit further about yoking with unbelievers, it's worth noting the observation, I think, of one commentator who said that in our society, this type of yoking these types of yokes may, may very well be more readily established through our intake of media in the shopping mall than with a neighbor. 
as we are influenced by and even identify with what we watch and read and listen to, we are, in a sense, perhaps without even realizing it, in a sense, we very well might be yoking ourselves to the message and to the ideas that those things are conveying. We've got to remember that our values as God's people are totally opposed to the values of the unbelievers in our culture who produce most of this stuff. So there's a lot of media that we probably really have no business even taking in. His shopping mall reference, which I think should also include the online equivalent, speaks to the idolatry of our culture's smothering materialism and covetousness. We can so easily yoke with the worldly thinking that happiness is derived from getting more possessions and that security comes from increasing our financial stability. So as we think about idolatry here for just a few moments, our worship of false gods is really subtle. Okay, It's not perhaps as blatantly obvious as it would have been in the Corinthian church. It's subtle. It's subtle because the temptation we have isn't to deny God outright, but to distrust his all-sufficiency and sovereignty so that we continue to need God. Of course we need God. But we need God and something else in order to satisfy us and to make us happy. So when we do this, when we, when we do this, we are worshiping an idol to which we are unequally yoked. So I have four examples And I hope you can see the connections here and how this works. First example, the thinking that in order to be satisfied, I need God and more money. This is an unequal yoke because Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. Or I need God, of course, and more or better possessions. 1 John 2 tells us that our demand for more is the lust of the eyes. And that does not come from our Father. That comes from the world. So we are unequally yoked when we think we must have more stuff. We must have better stuff in order to be happy. Consider this example. I I need God and comfort, ease, or pleasure. We've got to remember that the path to the cross for Jesus wasn't easy or comfortable. And he died so that we would not live for ourselves. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. So the demand to be pleased is the lust of the flesh. And that does not come from our Father. It comes from the world. So to insist on our own comfort and ease and pursuing personal pleasure in order to be happy is to be unequally yoked. Finally, the thought that we may have from time to time, I, in order to be satisfied, I need God and the love, honor, and approval of others. Where's our identity? 
Right? We've talked about that here in this text. Our identity is rooted in God's love for us and his acceptance of us. Our demand to be honored is the pride of life that does not come from our Father. It comes from the world. So to somehow be discontent or unhappy unless we have the love and approval of others is to be unequally yoked. In fact, to say, if only I had anything in addition to God, then I could be happy, is to be an idolater. An idolater who denies the sufficiency of the presence, power, and love of God to satisfy our souls. So I wonder this morning, are you aware of the presence of idolatry in your heart? It's there. It's there in all of us. What are the idols that you are unequally yoked to? Perhaps you see them clearly. Sometimes they're obvious, but I think more often than not, due to the nature of what idolatry is, we're blind to them. We don't see them. And so we need others. This is one of the ways in the Christian life we need others. We need others to help point out to us what our idols are. So in a spirit of humility, that desires holiness, I encourage you to invite others who know you and love you to help you detect the idols of your heart. We should welcome and we should value their input. And on this note, just two resources I want to mention. Um, David Pallison has written a list of x-ray questions. X-ray questions by David Pallison. There are 34 questions designed to reveal the whys and wherefores of human behavior. These questions help us see the idols of our heart. They're incredibly helpful. You can find them online. I'd be happy to get them to you if if you would desire. And then the second resource, the most helpful single thing I've ever read on this topic of idolatry, is Tim Keller's little book called Counterfeit Gods. It's really good. It's thorough. It covers this topic so well. And if you want to go deeper in understanding idolatry, I'd encourage you to get that book, and, and I'm sure you'll find it to be a prophet. So as God's people, our yoke is to the living God alone. Do our lives publicly and privately demonstrate that we belong to the colony of the church with its distinct subculture of righteousness or to the dominant culture of the world around us? Would those who know you well say that you are a stranger to the world or a friend of the world? And as we consider our individual holiness and the call to flee from idolatry, it's really important that we catch here that it's not optional. It's not an option for us. Did did you see that there in Paul's quoting of the Old Testament in, in verses 16 through 18? The promise of God's presence and being welcomed by God is contingent upon our holiness our separation from idols. So there's a bit of a warning here. As the author of the Hebrews said in chapter 12 and verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So, in light of that reality, we must strive after it. And as verse 1 of chapter 7 says, we must cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit 
bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Wow. How on earth? How do we? It's important, but how do we do this? How can we break free from our idols and cleanse ourselves from every defilement? Anybody here not find that hard? Well, it isn't just hard. It's actually impossible. We cannot do this on our own. But I wonder this morning as you sit here, do you want this? Do you desire this holiness? Do you desire to be accepted as one of God's very own children? There's something within you that, that does. You must first recognize that you cannot earn God's favor by trying harder to be a better person. You cannot please God on your own because you're a sinner. Separated from God, you cannot be holy through anything good that you can do. But there's good news. If you but repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, to cleanse and forgive you from all your unrighteousness, and to give you His perfect righteousness, through repentance and faith in that good news, you can become the very temple of God. Think of it. God Himself can live in you through His Spirit. On this New Year's Day, 2017, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have done, God can give you a new heart. And you can become a new creation. For in Jesus, the old is gone. All things have become new. There's so much more in that message I'd love to talk with you about. But I, if you have questions or want to know more about how you can have the holiness of God and how God can dwell in you, please let us know. Please talk with somebody before you leave. We would be happy to meet with you and discuss this further. Well, brothers and sisters, as we strive to bring our holiness to completion, we've got to remember that holiness is something that God gives to us as Christians. He has cleansed us from our sin through the shed blood of Christ apart from anything we have done. He has made us holy, setting us apart for His glory. But we see here that holiness is also something we must strive to complete as we wait for the day when God will complete the work He started. And as we do, we must realize that this call is not grounded in our abilities. It's grounded in the present exercise of God's sovereignty to deliver and protect us as our Father. The Lord Almighty will complete this work. Because of what God has done and one day will do, since we have these promises, we must continue to separate from sin and grow in holiness. Because of what God has done and one day will do, because we have these promises, we can continue to separate from sin and grow in holiness. Well, this is a fight. It's a fight that won't ever go away in this life. 
But it's a fight we're going to win. It's a fight we're going to win because, as DeYoung writes with great encouragement, you have the Spirit of Christ in your corner, rubbing your shoulders, holding the bucket, putting his arm around you and saying, you're going to knock him out, kid. Sin may get in some good jabs. It may clean your clock once in a while. It may even bring you to your knees. But you are in Christ. Because you're in Christ, it will never knock you out. You are no longer a slave, but free. Sin has no dominion over you. It can't. It won't. A new king sits on the throne. You serve a different master. You salute a different Lord. Well, the call for us today is clear. Both corporately and individually, we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why not? Because of our identity. Because of who we are. And we must not be unequally yoked with unbelievers because of God's promises. The promises that God has and continues to fulfill within us. Father, we thank you for this text. There's so much here and we confess how little of it we even grasp and fully understand. But Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us in Christ. Thank you for giving us your spirit and dwelling within us. Father, thank you for giving us the righteousness of Christ and transforming us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Thank you, Father, for adopting us as your very own sons and daughters. God, help us to see and understand more our identity, who we are. And Lord, as we do, may it motivate us towards holiness. Father, help us to see the places in our life where we are yoked with that which completely opposes our identity in Christ. Help us, Father, to see our idols that we're yoked to, Father, we pray that you would continue this work of making us more like you. And Father, may we pursue holiness as you call us to here. But Father, may we never forget that we can only do that because you're the one who's doing the work in our heart. So Father, help us by your grace to become more and more who we really are. We pray, Lord, you'd accomplish this work in our church, in our homes, in our lives, for your glory. Through Christ we ask these things. Amen.